3: not being afraid to be smart that's kind of like the the main thing i take away from a a band like squeeze
2: to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm your host, Mike Hippel, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book, as well as artists whom I love and respect. I'm excited to share with you today's episode. It's been a long time coming. Squeeze is one of the most enduring bands of the 80s with timeless songs like Black Coffee in Bed, Tempted, Cool for Cats, Up the Junction, and so many others. All of them still sound fresh today. In a little bit of a departure from previous episodes, this one is structured more like an oral history of the band, with Squeeze's singer-songwriter-guitarist Chris Difford, drummer Gilson Lavis, and bassist John Bentley. The group formed in South London in 1974, when Chris Difford posted an ad in a neighborhood store and... Well, let's just let Chris Difford take it from here.
0: A pivotal moment of my career has to be, I suppose, when I put an ad in a sweet shop window uh, for a guitarist to join a band and it took about three weeks for somebody to call and that person was called Glenn Tilbrook. And the reason I suppose I'm on this today and the reason I'm sitting where I'm sitting is because of our relationship. My first impressions were, let's see what happens. And that's always been my um, watchword, let's see what happens because something will happen. Our relationship is a songwriting relationship. We started writing songs in 1973, and um, I you know, here and there we sort of uh, managed to produce like 14 albums, um, which I think is incredible. And uh, you know, we've had a great lineup throughout the years with that band, Squeeze. Uh, Yeah, the sweet shop was in South London, uh, close to where I grew up and where Glenn grew up. So um, it was was in a little uh, corner of the street. Uh, It was a bit odd to put the advert in there in the first place, but um, I didn't know what to expect. It must have been fate. Well, my thought process was I was just looking for somebody local to... Uh, strum a guitar with and write possibly write some songs I had no idea that it would grow into something as wonderful as it has been and um you know it's incredible to think that our relationship and our partnership has lasted 49 almost 50 years um we sat together quite a lot in the summer of 73 and got to know each other by playing each other music and um just becoming mates really and uh We wrote hundreds of songs in the first year that we were together. Um, So there was a spark, definitely. And uh, as soon as we got a band around our songs, it really started to spark. Yeah, some of the first songs that we wrote and uh, played around with in those days are songs that uh, we've never recorded. They're just sort of, uh, they're quite poppy, really. Um, Some of them influenced by people like Sparks or Todd Rudgren so you know um beautiful songs i have to say south london in 1970s was uh quieter than it is now uh, more affordable um it was more of a community than it is now i think uh it was it was joyous to be there um you know things have changed quite considerably of course over the years it's not really the same place that i grew up in um glenn was at school with jules holland so um that's how we got to hang out with jules um yeah so um and then we put an advert for a drummer and we got gilson Lavis. Um uh, yeah so um yeah, that would that was that, that's kind of how it, how it, how it worked we kind of just all fell together at different times in
2: 1976 Gilson lavis replaced original drummer Paul Gunn Gilson was a drummer heard on all of the original classic recordings of the band
4: I've been working as a as a session drummer and a pickup drummer uh, and um things had ground to a halt as far as work goes uh, the government had, Brought in a three-day working week. Ted Heath, who was our prime minister in those days, and uh, and a lot of work had dried up, and so I was out of work, not enjoying life much. I had a uh, I was partners in a music shop in Southend, and that and that went into administration, and I was really oh dear, this is a going well. And I was the ripe old age of twenty-two or something, and I'd already played drums with all sorts of people from, I don't know, uh, Chuck Berry, uh, Jerry Lee, uh, you know, endless uh, people that I've worked with. But there was nothing happening. There were no tours. So I went home to live with my mother and I got a job stacking bricks in a a brickyard um, uh, so they could be loaded onto lorries. And after three or four months of doing this, really rigorous, really strenuous work. My hands had started to form into permanent claws. And I thought, this is no good. I can't be doing with this. Um, So um, I bought a melody maker, and in the melody maker, there was a tiny, tiny little ad saying, South London Band looking for a drummer. Uh, And I was not feeling completely, uh, very um, full of my own wisdom and, and abilities at the time. So I thought, oh, this looks gentle and quiet, and you know there, <laughs> you know, no, there's no, there's nothing big or starry about this ad. I'll, I'll see if I can limbo under the door. And so I, I, I applied, went down for an audition, and that's to into a, a basement of a swimming pool in Greenwich in, uh, in London. Uh, and there, when I went in with my uh, I drove down in my mother's Mini. I took out the seat so I could get my doctor Octoblust drum kit in it. Drove down there, uh, unpacked it, set it up. And there in front of me was Jules, Chris Glenn and Harry Kikuli, uh, this South London band. Um, and that's when I first met. And and I think I was probably the first drummer that turned up that could actually play the drums. Uh, so I got the gig. <laughs> Uh, so that was it, really. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was from a uh, London brickyard uh, to um, to join in Squeeze, and and they had a manager, and they offered me fifteen pound a week. Uh, I don't know what that is in dollars. Probably about in those days, probably about twenty five dollars something a week. Uh, and, uh, and they had a manager, Miles Copeland. So I was very impressed, you know. So uh, that's how it started. But but it was uh, the first time for an awfully long time that I felt like I was in a band, and it was an edgy band. It wasn't the the band I was in before. we playing a lot of covers and a lot of you know, a lot of covers band, I suppose. You know, but this was a, a an up and coming band playing original material. My word, do you mean a proper group? You know, so uh, so yeah, it was different.
2: With Gilson on board, along with Jules Holland on keyboards, and Hari Kakuli on bass, Squeeze released their first EP, Packet of Three, followed by their self-titled debut record in 1978. The debut produced their first hit, Take Me, I'm Yours, paving the way forward for the band. 1979's Cool for Cats broke the band wide open with now classics like the title track, Up the Junction, Goodbye Girl, and Slap and Tickle hitting the music charts in the UK. Kakuli left the band around this time and bassist Jonathan Bentley came on board. Here's Jonathan.
1: Well, back in, we're talking about 1979. So it's over 40 years ago. Yeah, you know, I can, I can barely remember what I had for breakfast, but I, I can remember going to audition for Squeeze. Um, and the main reason I can remember this is because I've sort of got a diary fetish. I've got diaries going back to 1970 and I've got my diary for 1979 and I know exactly where I was, where the audition was and what I did that day. So basically, I don't know if you know in this in the UK back then um all joining groups was done by answering adverts in the Melody Maker. So I got my, my usual copy of the Melody Maker and then I think it's on the, the back inside cover. It's got all the ads for drummer wanted, guitarist wanted, singer wanted, and you have to go through them all. And uh, the, the Squeeze one said American Tour, so I thought, oh, that, that sounds good. So I phoned them up and then I arranged to go and audition, but I went down there twice and there was nobody there. Uh, but I persevered. And then eventually, I managed to go there on a day when they were all there, and they they were rehearsing their new bass player. They'd already auditioned fifty-seven bass players, and they'd chosen one. So I was just sitting in the like in a control room, you know, looking through the glass, watching them rehearse. I would I was sitting with Chris Difford, but I didn't realise. It was Chris Difford at the time because I'd never met him. I thought he was their manager or something. So after all the trouble that I'd spent trying to get to this audition, after watching this their bass player that they'd hired, I said, "Oh, I turned to Chris and I, I said, um, well, I'm a lot better than he is. And anyway, to cut a long story short, Chris and I were getting on like a house on fire. And then he said, well, I'm going to arrange for us a special audition for you. And then I went back the next day. And, uh, well, the rest is history, really. On the day that I auditioned for them, uh, I also auditioned for Susie Quattro. I answered an ad in the Melody Maker. This was for the guitarist, because I'd been playing guitar mainly uh, with Snips and the Video Kings. Various people. I've been playing guitar, so I went in the morning. Well, it was lunchtime. I went for an audition with Susie Quattro, playing the guitar, and that seemed to go well. And then, then I went on to the squeeze audition. I didn't actually have a bass because I've been playing guitar for years with bands, and I, uh, I mean, I borrowed a, I borrowed a, a Fender Mustang. Of a friend of mine And that's what I used for the audition For Squeeze um, I mean I, It was an incredible day We had a jam session And it's kind of right up my street Jamming And uh, I think they were they were Obviously really impressed but, but I think the main thing With these auditions Certainly back then And it it's obviously a bit different now But it's the way you look You know if the band's all kind of five foot seven and you walk in and you're six foot one, they're immediately put off. You all have to kind of have fit in and I've fitted in exactly with the band. And I think that's what helped me, you know, apart from the fact that I could play. But I I, I sort of um, psychologically, I G'd myself up for the uh, audition by imagining that I was Andy Fraser from Free, who's always been my favourite bassist. And I was just like, imagined that I was him for the audition. and I played very much in his style, which is sort of a very strong style. So that's basically it. And then the following day, like really early in the morning, I think it was about half past eight in the morning, I got a phone call from Glenn Tilbrook asking me to join the band. Uh, Which I agreed to, uh, you know, on the spot, basically. But now this is the interesting part. Um, About I don't know an hour and a half later or so, the phone went, and it was Susie Quattro. She wanted me to join her band. Uh, So, so I then had a choice between joining Susie Quattro as the guitarist or Squeeze as the bass player. It's unbelievable. Situation to be in. Now you might think that it was a bit of a no-brainer. You know, why did I join Squeeze? Why didn't I join Susie Quattro? In 1979, she'd already had like two or three number one records. She was really well known, uh, much better known than Squeeze. She was. They were a bigger band, you know. So it, but it, for me, it was an easy decision, really, because the Squeezes' music. I much preferred it. Uh, it was more challenging and I could see more potential in it. Uh, and the, the other thing that was quite funny, at the audition, Susie's, Susie Quattro's boyfriend, who was a bit of a thug, I thought, he was looking daggers at me during the audition and I, I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. But in retrospect, I think he might have saw me as some kind of threat. So that sort of put me off joining the band as well. After I joined, Squeeze, the, um, we, we started to rehearse, <clears throat> and um, at one of the rehearsals, uh, Gilson Levis, the drummer, played me "Cool for Cats" on his Ghetto Blaster and said, "This is our going to be our latest single. It's just about to be released." You know, I knew it because um, I've been rehearsing it. You know, uh, and uh, he played me it, and I said, "What on earth? What on earth?" Did what on earth are you releasing that for? It'll never be a hit. <laughs> so, just shows how much I know. And anyway, yeah, it got to number two. I mean, the timing of the, this whole thing was ridiculous for me. One minute, you know, I wasn't doing much at all. The next minute I've joined Squeeze. Three weeks later, it's at number two in the charts, and I'm off to America to do a tour supporting the Tubes. My 1979 diary. I mean, it's about that year was just incredible. It's my one of my prized possessions. Just I've got it here in front of me now, just flicking through the pages. All the sort of top of the pops and the Kenny Everett video shows and touring with the Tubes. I mean, it's just incredible, and it was all non-stop. It's like seven days a week absolutely it was just my feet didn't touch the ground you know for that year the sort of people that I was meeting and you know I've never been to America before i mean it, i always wanted to go but i always had it planned that i would join a band you know and go for nothing so it was like a free holiday and that's what happened when i joined squeeze in february of 1979 um I never I you could never get any you could never get any money out of them. I didn't have any wages. And I was just looking at an entry here for Friday the 6th of April and it says fly to America for tubes tour. And then uh, underneath that it says still no wages. So I obviously still hadn't been paid anything yet. But obviously I just didn't really care. I probably would have paid them. At that point, I was living in one tiny little room uh, uh, that was just, it was probably, I can't remember how much it was, it was probably something like a five, it was at 1979, it was probably about like a five or a, a month or something, you know, I was paying. It wasn't even supposed to be a bedroom, you could just get a bed in it. And I remember I had Sex Pistols, it was that small that I got a whole load of Sex Pistols posters from. A and M records because Sex Pistols signed to A and M, same label as Squeeze. And a, a, in the A and M warehouse, I found all these Sex Pistols. Never mind the bollocks posters. So I had a, a wallpapered the whole room in posters, but it only took about you know twenty posters to wallpaper the whole room, including the the ceiling. So that's that's probably why I could afford it. But I'd got we got paid eventually, you know.
2: Their next LP, R.G. Bargy, helped break them wide in America with songs like Pulling Muscles from a Shell and If I Didn't Love You. Jules Holland left the band around this time and Gilson's battle with alcoholism had him leaving the band shortly thereafter. Uh, well, I was, uh, I'm was i a recovering
4: alcoholic. So uh, I haven't drunk for many, many, many years. But, um, but I, I managed to get sacked twice. Uh, the first time I was sacked was after uh we we got very successful in and all all over the world really uh but we were you know playing places like madison square garden in new york and and uh you know big venues around america and, and, and big venues in 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 britain you know around the world but i was drinking really heavily and i don't know if you have got any experience of alcoholism or people with alcoholism uh but um it was getting very uncomfortable for me um it was um uh, yeah i couldn't really um function as a as a going concern either as a musician or a human being i became very um i became more of a problem than a than a benefit so uh and so i got the sack and um it came as a shock um I didn't really see it coming. I suppose I was rather resentful at the time, you know, because um, I didn't really get a chance to straighten my act out. It was just, um, you know, all right, we'll have six months off, Gilson, and you can go and get into rehab and sort yourself out. There was none of that. It was just, you know, be off with you, (laughs) which is all right. But anyway, uh, so I I left the band and I was – I was pretty unemployable, really. I I had no money. I had no uh, wherewithal, really. And um, so I I drove a minicab. I went from playing Madison Square Garden to driving a minicab, all in this space of about two months. Uh, A minicab, you know, a taxi in in London. Uh, And that went on for about a year. And I got sober, stopped drinking. Uh, which was good. And Chris and Glenn went off and recorded a, uh, a solo album when there's two of you, a duo album. Uh, um, and I think it was very good, actually, but I'm not sure it sold well. But after um, a year of that, they phoned me up and said, Do you want to come and we're going to reform Squeeze? Because they'd actually not just sacked me, but they disbanded Squeeze too. You know, it was all it was a real sort of new broom and um and so it was a choice shall i keep mini or shall i have another go in squeeze you know no and of course i i'll I rejoin squeeze and off we went again more hit records uh more tours more everything and that went on for many years and um it was a strange time in my life because all the all the band was still um, you know, obviously, being being a band, you know, drinking and and doing all that sort of stuff, and going round in a tour bus, and I was stone cold sober. Didn't and I was I was sitting up the front of the bus with the driver, you know, keeping away from all the all the band stuff. But uh, that's all right. That went on for a, a, about another seven years, and then um, my marriage then broke up. Uh, my then long-suffering wife Elaine and I parted company and of course I made the dastardly mistake of picking up a drink again and I and I got sacked again, probably quite rightly but I got sacked again so I was unemployed uh, and broken again but I did manage to stop drinking and that was over, th- God, how many years ago was that? 30, 35 years, 40, I don't know 35 years ago
2: Squeeze as a band dissolved in 1982. Bentley remembers his last gig with the band.
1: Well, uh, I think it was maybe maybe it was 82. I thought it was 83, but I remember the uh, the last gig that we ever that I ever did with them at that at that juncture. Um, it was at the Sunsplash festival in Jamaica. Uh, and uh, we, we we played at that festival along with The Grateful Dead and The Clash, Aretha Franklin, um, Bob Marley's son's band, or whatever they were called. Anyway, so that was the last gig that we ever did. Uh, but that's a whole story on its own, doing that gig in Jamaica. But basically, after the gig, Glenn and Chris folded the band. I think we knew... I knew before the gig, it wasn't like a surprise announcement. I knew they were going to fold the band. And then they went off and formed Difford and Tilbrook, which was sort of like a duo.
2: Squeeze reformed in 1985 and released Fan Tutti Frutti. Gilson Lavis and Jules Holland were back on board with this incarnation. In 1987, they released Babylon and On, which featured their biggest U.S. hit, Hourglass. To this day, Squeeze continued to thrive, Doing lots of touring, releasing new music, and inspiring a new generation of artists. Acts as varied as Lily Allen, Marshall Crenshaw, and the Killers all cite Squeeze as a major influence on their work. John Fay from the 90s band The Caulfields spoke to me about how Squeeze was influential to his musical upbringing.
3: I guess because of the generation I grew up in, um, like a lot of kids my own age, my first um, exposure to Squeeze was on MTV. Um, And it was actually because the song, the video um, that I saw first was Tempted, it was really not like the most uh, best example of what my appreciation for Squeeze would ultimately be, because obviously that's a Paul Carrick lead vocal. And um, it's just it's just kind of an anomaly in a little bit of way in in what I consider to be like the classic Squeeze sound. Uh, which really, for me, starts with the Cool for Cats album and particularly R g Bargy was like a huge record for me because every song on there is just genius, I think. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I think that because of the way I started out as a songwriter, which was someone who didn't play an instrument. Well, I played the drums. That was my first instrument. And that's when I started to attempt writing songs with uh, other friends who were kind of in my high school band um, that we formed. Um, So the way that their songwriting was set up being like a team effort between Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook with Difford writing all the lyrics and Tilbrook writing the music, it really kind of uh, registered in my brain like, oh, you know, like you can be a just a lyric writer in a songwriting collaboration and it can work because I, it's very difficult to execute the kind of songwriting that they do at that kind of high level because it's not the easiest thing to just like have somebody like write some lyrics and then have somebody take those lyrics and just write music to it and have it come out to be like a, brilliant, cohesive, well-structured song. It's like I've tried it. (laughs) It's not the easiest thing to do. And the way they were able to meld both of their talents in the way that they did was just always mind-blowing to me. Chris Difford's lyrics were always something that I just thought were incredibly smart, And this was, you mind you, you know, so this would have been like the early 80s. I was a a teenager in high school and um, not a lot of people really knew who Squeeze was. um, And not a lot of people that I knew really kind of appreciated that style of songwriting, which is, you know, like I've always loved pop music, but I love it when there's sort of an element of intelligence to the lyricism. And that's what, you know, songs like um, If I Didn't Love You, for example, it's just so smart the way those those verses come together. So many of their songs are that, you know, it just gives you a visual. Um, and yet... Tilbrook is able to mine those lyrics and, kind of like, find the hooks that he emphasizes with the melody writing, which is another like kind of like mind blowing thing about how they work together. Not being afraid to be smart—that's kind of like the the main thing I take away from a, a band like Squeeze.
2: And how does Squeeze feel about their success and their legacy? Here's Chris Difford again.
0: I don't really know about success. It's kind of it's a kind of um success is in the in the observer, if you like, in the in the audience. It's difficult to grasp success. I've always felt that we've been very close to whatever success might mean, but we've never been actually there. It's almost just been around the corner the whole time, which is fine. And um, it's something that I think is probably there for a reason. I'm proud of the fact that we have a great band and we still tour um, and that we we really do manage to look after our catalog in an extremely sensible way. Um, so, I'm very proud of that fact. I think it's, it's 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 a it's a wonderful thing to have all of those songs and still make sure that they sound good.
2: Here's Gilson Lavis again.
4: Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain really because we were a very unique. I don't think there's been another band then or since that has been quite like Squeeze. There were certain bands that were quite musical, like XTC and and. Um, uh, Robinson, what's his name? Come, bad on names, but but there were bands that were playing songs and not just—I don't mean just derogatory, but but sort of punk thrashes. There were quite a few bands doing songs, but I think Squeeze had this other dimension to them, you know, coming from Chris's lyrics and and Glenn's melodies. So uh, there we go. I don't know what else to add, mate. Really, you know, I was. I was and I was just there along for the ride, really it was all so new to me. Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks to Chris Difford, Gilson Lavas, and John Bentley for sharing their memories and stories. And thank you to John Fay for contributing to this piece as well. Squeeze still keep busy. Just last year, they released an EP titled Food for Thought and continue to tour regularly. Gilson Lavas still keeps busy and is a noted painter, showing his work all around the UK. And he still occasionally plays with Jules Holland. Jonathan Bentley still records music and released an album with his band The Buzz Nicks in 2018. And John Fay from the Caulfields will be releasing a new memoir this year titled The Ying and the Yang of It All, which you'll be able to get on April 4th. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book, Live Through That, on 90s Artist and get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. In addition, my earlier book, 80s Redux, is available wherever you buy your books. In that book, I have a feature on Chris Difford. If you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening.